Hello and welcome to Voyager, A Theological Journey. I'm Captain Rainway and this is my unruly crew. I'm Will Nicholas. And I'm Lindsay Cullen. Marching meta-narrative is that they're going as fast and as hard as they can, you know, back towards Federation space. No, they're not. They're poking their nose into everything. And that really annoys me, I have to say. See and hear all of our quirks and foibles as we work together as a team. Welcome to Voyager, a theological journey. We're glad you could join our crew. And this week, the 23rd episode of season two is called The Thor. You may have heard us talk about this one a few times coming up, and here's a synopsis. Voyager has come across an iced planet recovering from solar system cataclysm. The once active coal settlement is reduced to five interconnected stasis chambers in which two of the five occupants have died. The chambers should have opened on their own years before, but they haven't as yet. To learn more, Kim and Torres enter the system and discover a a virtual world ruled by an evil clown manifestation of fear itself. The Voyager crew endeavour to free Kim and Torres and the three coal hostages without the malevolent clown killing them first. Well, I have to say I found this an interesting episode, though it did tug at my credulity gene once again. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure, given what they don't know, why you would send your two crew members into an unknown situation that you know is malfunctioning. So um, from the start, my eyebrows went up and they stayed out. However, it must have the best finishing line I've ever heard in um, a series. And, uh, that was quite. That was worthwhile watching it for that last bit. I thought. Drat. I I do <laughs> love the ending. I, I I said in my little chat to you both beforehand. You know, best ending ever. What will become of us? Of me. Like all fear, you eventually vanish. I'm afraid. I know. Drag. I I I yeah. love not only the drat but the the fade to black and and actually Janeway's uh, last words where fear says I'm afraid and she says I know <laughs> I just love her <laughs> her tone as it fades to black. <laughs> yes, I did read um, that um, this was the first time that the set crew um, and effects crew had access to dynamic lighting on the set. Uh, and so they they uh, they got criticised a little bit for overplaying. So the lighting changes significantly over and over again. Um, I, I did some research into what dynamic lighting is, and and it's actually just being able to have a swivel dial that actually allows you to turn the lighting up now. So I've got that in my lounge room today. So, um, but but back then that was a really big thing to be able to change the effects of lighting at different parts of the set, and they used it, I think, to to great effect in this episode. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Will 
It's it's an interesting episode, isn't it? Because in some ways it's a bit of a bottle episode where they're only in this sort of one setting uh, plus a, a few, you know, different rooms of Voyager uh, for conferences and whatever. Um, and, and, and yet it's quite dynamic with all those people coming and going and the different sort of sculptures of different uh, sizes and shapes and uh, the whole carnival atmosphere. I, I quite like that. It has that that sense of being on the one hand kind of fun but on another hand kind of grotesque and and you know anxiety producing yeah i found the grotesque probably outweighed the fun bit because and i think it was meant deliberately to be grotesque and it made me wonder again why we pick carnivali and clowns as objects of fear. Mm. It is not an unknown thing at all. And there's been a lot of popular horror movies and shows that have picked on clowns or this sort of grotesque nature of the carnival as something to induce fear. It actually goes back a really long way. I mean, it's something that goes right back into, um, uh, you know, uh, Roman times and even before where the the, the fool is, is this um, character of... Of, of safety for themselves, but also um, uh, of, of fear, of vulnerability for others. And we talked about a little bit um, before with the episode where Janeway finds herself um, being supported by the fool uh, in, uh, in, in an episode previously. Um, but even interculturally, you know, we, we see that uh, we've got um, um, uh, Chinese and Eastern philosophical views of of the fool uh, in the character of Yin Zi, uh, who's the only one who could tell the emperor that they shouldn't paint the Great Wall of China. Um, so there, there, there's that. There is this kind of vulnerability that comes from secrets, from I think not being able to see someone's face. Yeah, I think too. The other thing about the fool is that. Um, they are prone to do the unexpected. You never know what's going to happen. And so there's actually a vulnerability in giving yourself over to that uh, in the context of a performance or something. You don't know whether they're going to do something scary or frightening or come and shoot water in your face or, you know, anything Mm. could happen. And that's part of the the fear response. I I did like um, Michael McKean in this uh, part, because I think um, his his clown makeup and persona walked that line well. That it wasn't um, over the top horrific, like you know Pennywise in in Stephen King's It, um, mm. but it, it was just on that line. As sometimes you could actually see him almost as a, an enjoyable character, and then other times he was really dark and malevolent. And I, I liked the fact that it, it wasn't clear. I think it was, I felt it was deliberately nebulous, if you like. Look, for me, his character as the fool didn't seem to me the fool of history that Will's just spoken about, where the fool can say things that and name things that others can't. I was, I've been reading studies on wisdom and what jumped out for me about this fool, here's the fool from um, Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hebrew word is carseel. And it says that the fool is someone who is a cancer to the lives of his friends and family and community. And worst of all, he does not believe himself to be a fool because he's intoxicated on the rot gut of his own faux wisdom. Um, And I think that nails it for this particular character. I think he's the fool of that nature from Ecclesiastes. 
And this is from a book called Unveiling Mercy by Chad Bird, just so I give a shout-out to Chad and he yeah. doesn't think I'm just plagiarising him. And and Michael McKean really nails that role. I think he actually yeah. really brings in that aspect of of the fool um, in his in his manifestation of fear. Now Michael McKean, um, underneath all that makeup, or even with that makeup, has a distinctive voice, a distinctive look. Um, you will have seen him in everything from Friends to NCIS to all the way back as far as playing the character of Lenny uh, from the famed pair Lenny and Squiggy in the show Laverne and Shirley. A spin-off from Happy Days, so he's a he's a well-known comedian. Um, and um, and and Lindsay, I think um, uh, part of a favourite um, movie uh, comedy of yours as well. Well, absolutely, yes. He's he's part of the uh, ensemble that's uh, part of that fantastic movie Spinal Tap. Uh, you know, a, um, a a mockumentary about a uh, a rock band that um, I I was sharing with Will earlier. You know, one of my proudest moments as a parent was persuading my daughter to sit down and watch Spinal Tap with me, and I, I think she enjoyed it. I don't think she got quite the same joy out of it that I do, but um, she it, it did inspire her enough to want her. Uh, to go back and look at the other uh, mockumentaries in that kind of stream. There's uh, one about a dog show and, and what about a a, a a pop folk group, uh, and, and they're all very, very funny. And Michael McKean is one of the key players uh, in the band. Uh, David St. Cubbins or something like that, I think. Yes, yeah, that's right. Well, let's um, uh, move from foolishness to, to the heart of this episode, which is actually the concept of fear. Um, I think there's a lot for us to think about in terms of fear. I had a brief look uh, in terms of like a, a biblical word search and discovered that, um, that uh, in the NRSV, um, fear actually appears 275 times in the Old Testament and 77 times in the New Testament. Um, so there's... There's a lot about fear in the Bible, um, and often fear is attributed to be a way of the way we should relate to God. So I thought that might be an interesting thing for us to explore. Actually, um, it's interesting that the way into fear here, and I think we were beginning to touch on this when we were talking about the, the character of the fool, is actually that um, the the clown in this episode does have an incredible amount of perception of what's going on for people because he is in contact with their brains. And so, you know, some of the ways that he creates fear, for example, for Harry Kim are, are, are deeply connected with, you know, the things that he knows about Harry, both in terms of, uh, you know, his, his general... Uh, desire to be seen as an adult and he doesn't like being the baby of the crew. Um, you know, he mm. puts his finger right on uh, Harry's kind of um, mummy issues with the, the captain and, and how she is, you know, like this surrogate mother, whether that's what Harry wants or not. Um, and then, of course, that quite scary scene where he recreates a, a thing that happened to Harry as a child when he wandered off in a hospital and uh, and was just about to uh, see some young girl put under surgery and, and the clown's about to um, cut him up uh, when uh, the doctor intervenes, luckily. I found that was one of the credulity stretches for me because if these are figments of someone in Stasis's mind, 
how can you mortally wound them or kill them or cut them up? I had some difficulty with that, I have to say. So where I was, I'm always glad to see the doctor in any circumstance. And I thought he had a good role in this, albeit a small one. Um, I found myself wondering, you know, this is the projection of Harry Kim, not the blood and flesh Harry Kim. So how can you actually wound him? I mean, I certainly uh, the only context I can speak to that from personally would be those times where I've had um, really, really vivid and bad dreams. Um, and I remember a few years ago, I, I actually um, was having a, a whole bunch of these really bad dreams after a, a fairly difficult traumatic episode of my own life. And my subconscious actually moved me to injure myself during the nighttime while I was sleeping. Um, I actually... Um, uh, cut into my own skin with my fingernails while I was sleeping. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's there's that aspect of it. I mean, in stasis, they obviously couldn't harm themselves in that way, but, no. but I guess the stress could cause the body in other ways. I mean, the heart, after all, is a muscle. Um, and so it, it it could become overworked. Um, and they talked about neural damage um, uh, that was being caused as well. I, I guess um, things like post traumatic stress um, can can could be caused by exposure to to imagery um, or or experiences. So I mean, I, I guess I was um, leaning towards well, I'm happy to give it a bit of space here and actually explore the 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 um the the, the other possibilities there, there's the old wives tale about how um you know in dreams you always wake up before you die um and uh, the old wives tale is if you ever die in the dream you'll die in real life you know your, your body can't handle the stress of dying in the dream and that's why you always wake up beforehand um i'm, I'm not sure if there's any truth in that but it's certainly one of those things that's uh, that's talked about and and i guess for me the the idea that they are directly plugging their brains into something um you know that is able to give them a total sensation of being uh, in a in a place i think you know leads me to think well i i, I can understand that if your brain was getting this this fear response so heavily that that perhaps it would cause you to, um, you know, uh, actually um, uh, have a have a heart attack from fear. I guess it, it comes down to you know, do you have the the mind capabilities? Maybe it'd be different if it was Tuvok in there to to actually concentrate on the fact that this is not real and that although it seems entirely real and everything you can touch and see and smell it's not real maybe maybe someone like Tuvok could have uh, used his mind disciplines to protect against that well poor old harry tries when he keeps talking about there's nothing to fear but fear itself but he's just overwhelmed um, I did look up, because I was curious about this, whether anyone could die of fear. Uh, it is possible, apparently. It's incredibly rare. It's usually related to the heart, where the heart will give out because it'll go into um, an arrhythmia or a ventricle fibrillation, which is quite a dangerous uh, arrhythmia. But it generally only occurs with people who do have an underlying heart condition, yep. which has weakened it and made it susceptible. So, um, again, I, I re I'm willing to suspend my disbelief will but um if you ask me practically was that a possibility probably not but then again i don't know how aliens hearts are built they might be different to ours and it could be quite possible to develop 
um, I guess, a condition, if you were subjected to this kind of um, psychological trauma consistently over a period of what were they in there for, 15 years? Yeah. Um, now, it may not have started happening straight away, but even if it had been happening for, for you know, eight or, you know, uh, or so years, it would still be a fairly prolonged period of stress. Um, I also wanted to hark back to uh, the uh, the writer and director Wes Craven and his 1984 um, Nightmare on Elm Street um, series. It was the series that I was not allowed to watch but secretly did when I was a teenager where uh, Freddy Krueger um, um, terrorises teenagers in their dreams, causing them to to die um, from their dreams. Um, it has a very much a supernatural component to it. But in, in this case, we have this technology component, and I love that the, the fear mocks... <laughs> Um, Harry Kim for this this technology being the techo guy who's going to work it out. Well, perhaps I'll be a virus today. <laughs> oh, this one's got a mind full of technical and operational thoughts and ideas. Harry knows viruses. They're hooked in to this stasis, so so somehow. Um, it would have access to things like maybe adrenal glands or 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 other parts of the body that would could could create um, a greater level of um, physical reaction and response too. Though I would expect if they're truly in stasis, some of that would not be possible. Mm. If you're truly in stasis, and even being in stasis, I had to wonder how their brains remaining active were being fed because if you starve your brain of blood sugar, for instance. It won't. It won't end well. It just. Um, so I found myself thinking biologically how uh, some of these problems were being overcome because clearly they're not eating in there and they're using up all this energy with fear. So where are they getting their nurture from in terms of keeping their brains alive? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well, picky, picky, pre- I know. Pres- presumably that that whole you know. Um, thing that they're trapped in, uh, you know, is sort of plumbed into their system so that they're getting intravenous uh, things or whatever it might be. I I have to say, for me, I was much less um, uh, concerned about that uh, level of of things. And and the thing that really raised my incredulity level was the fact that there was this whole planet, uh, I think they referred to uh, 400,000 people, Doesn't, which yeah. uh, which still seems very low for a sophisticated uh, high-tech planet, but they only save five people, five of them. you know. Yeah. Like, like, uh, yeah. Isn't that the best you yes. can do? <laughs> Team us. Well, I agree. I, that was, I thought that was strange because I'm thinking, well, here's a place roughly the size of the ACT um, and they can find only five people to enter this state. And it's not like they wouldn't have warning of this natural catastrophe. It wouldn't have just happened. Something, You know, these things, you get warning that they're going to happen. So I agree with you, Lindsay. I thought that was very odd. Yeah, I'm not sure these five people are good people, really. They let everyone else die. So, mm, um, you know, mm. uh, yeah, I, I, I did uh, did find myself asking that question. But before we get distracted by our incredulity, <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's, let's return to the concept of fear. I think um, there's a lot for us to explore here in terms of fear. So, I mean, it's interesting they're having these, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, conferences about how do you 
connect with or defeat fear. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, the things I noted down was Tuvok are saying fear is the most primitive, the most primordial uh, of biological responses. And, and I, I, I wondered to myself, is that true? I wonder, mm. is it true or not? Is it fear? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. And particularly when we start to think then about humans, I'm not sure fear is the fundamental thing uh, that, that, that characterises us as humans. I think it probably is true, Lindsay, uh, because it's the fight, flight, fright response is the most basic and primitive response we have, that it comes from the um, brainstem rather than, you know, your cerebral cortex or more developed parts of the brain. And it's sitting there along with the most basic functions you need to survive, such as heart rate and breathing and your core temperature. So it actually is in the most primitive part of the brain. So I would argue it probably is the most primitive emotion we have. And it was designed, as Janeway very articulately says, to protect us. Mm. To keep us safe from carelessness and other bits and pieces. I, I Or from a woolly mammoth coming, yeah, yeah. you know, descending into our region. Um, I, I also uh, I, I love the poem by Michael Lunig, Australian um, comic artist Michael Lunig, that talks about the two motivations that there are. He, he makes the very strong statement saying there are only two motivations, love and fear, that, that everything else is actually drawn from these two. So we might begin to talk about, you know, anger. Um, well, well, often anger is, is inspired by, by love or, or by fear. Um, and so that, that in some ways I, I wonder if, love and fear are actually like primary colours um, and that, that all other colours kind of, all other emotions kind of do stream out from these these two in some way or another is a, is a question I'm posing there. Yeah, well, of course, Lunig is probably, uh, you know, sort of influenced by the, the Christian tradition um, and, and uh, you know, the writer of uh, the uh, epistles, uh, one, two, three, John uh, says exactly that, that, you know, fear and love are these two uh, warring things. And, and he, he puts it that perfect love casts out fear. You can't have fear in uh, the, the um, same sphere as perfect love. I don't agree with that. That's a nice ideal to aspire to, but I'm not sure anyone has ever reached those dizzy heights of sitting, feeling perfect love and not being prone to feeling fear. And I also think anger is closer to fear than love is, mm. myself. Um, people who are angry or anxious or and they're doing awful things like having protests about vaccinations or lockdowns or refugees or whatever it is often are driven by fear mm. when they do these things. So I think that um, I'm not sure how close love is to all of this. Well, it's a powerful motivator, isn't it? I mean, and, and when you think about it, I mean, I, I wonder whether sometimes they're they are two sides to the same coin in some senses. Like in this particular case, the fear um, is it, it loves having those people around in the stasis chamber and, in fact, needs them to be there um, and so provides them with everything they have, nurtures them, cares for them, keeps them going at the same time as making sure that if they try to leave, um, that, that he'll destroy them. And I, I think there's some really interesting blurred lines between love and fear that people can set out to love but actually instead fear. And can, um, so I think there's some, some fascinating stuff there. 
But is self-interest love? It's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. And can we ever shed can we ever shed self-interest? <laughs> to give the writer of, of uh, John's epistles uh, their due, um, they're not talking about humans summoning up some, you know, vast reservoirs of love by which they uh, defeat fear. The, the writer very clearly um, is, is aligning perfect love with God. And this, this is a metaphor for speaking about God and, and being in God. Um, is the thing that that takes us away from fear, and and I agree with Elizabeth. We never get there as humans, but but that's mm. the aspiration: is that when we are completely wound up in God, we will be completely wound up in love, and we will be immune to fear. Mm. Uh, I I, <laughs> I find that really fascinating because there are other parts of the Bible that actually call us to the fear of God, um, and that in fact. Uh, the, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom is something that, that is, is proclaimed in several parts of the Bible. So, so this image we have is that God is someone to be, to be feared and, and, and we're, 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 we're encouraged to do that by God's jealousy, by God's anger, by God's wrath, which actually are all undeniably part of the, the, the text that we, we canonize as the Bible. I'd probably want to unpack the word fear as it's used, particularly in the Old Testament, a little bit more. It isn't fear of someone who is wrathful necessarily. It's not fear of like the fear of the clown was in Star Trek. It's an old-fashioned way of understanding it. It means awe and reverence and you are afraid because of the awe and reverence. It's a different it's, – it's in a different class and it shouldn't really be translated fear anymore we should start finding a better word for it because if you just say fear, you lose those connotations of awe and reverence, and that is clearly there in the word. Well, um, and I think in the in the wisdom literature, it, it's it's moving even beyond fear and reverence, uh, beyond awe and reverence to the activity of, of obedience, of respect, so that that our, our reverence for God is such that we respect the words of God and they become wisdom, that it's in um, uh, uh, subjecting or, or humbling ourselves to, toward God that we are able to receive these words which become the, the wisdom that shapes our life. And, and, you know, I mean, I think we might... Uh, want to think about other ways that we grow into wisdom uh, other than the sort of uh, root of obedience. But that's, I think, at at the core of that particular calling. I think it is in Proverbs, Lindsay, but I'm going to challenge you on Ruth, Ecclesiastes and Job because I don't think they're doing anything of the sort. I mean, Job spends 35 chapters having a go at God and saying to him um, why he thinks God is not getting this right. Uh, Ecclesiastes spends the whole book saying everything is vanity or everything is dust or wind. You know, it's this mere vapour. In the book of Ruth, you've got everybody acting in ways they probably shouldn't be acting. Um, They're doing things that are highly manipulative um, to achieve certain outcomes. And God commends Job at the end of that book for not so much for the conclusions he's reached because God just says to him, you're wrong, dude. 
but he commends him for his journey, for the process, for the questions he asks. Mm. So that's what Job is commended for at the end of the book, not because he's obedient, because he clearly isn't. We know he's righteous and innocent, but he's saying all sorts of terrible things about God for, you know, as I said, it's pretty long-winded. Um and at the end, God says, yes, you were right. Well, well, God does say that, but God says that in one verse after three or four chapters of saying, you know, <laughs> get in your place, Job, you are not God. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> God says, you just don't understand this mortal. And I love the line where he says, look, I'll give you a day and by your own measures of uh, right and wrong, you meet out reward and justice to everyone in the world. And, of course, poor old Job isn't just overwhelmed by that whole idea. And you're left with this ambiguous universe that's quite amoral in some ways with all these random elements in it. But I, I would quarrel that obedience is what's at the heart of it. It is not. That's, I, I would agree. And I, and I think that, that I would question the, the sincerity of obedience if it only existed out of fear of consequence. Like exactly. if, if the only reason I do what I do is because I'm afraid of what might happen to me um, or what I might lose or what it might cost me um, to do that. Um, I mean, you know, there are people in our current COVID situation who have, who have stayed home, um, who have worn masks, who have done so because they believe that that's the best thing for our neighbour and the way in which we might love each other and care for each other during this difficult time. There are others who have stayed home because they are scared that they'll get fined or imprisoned or, or something bad will happen to them. Like there's a sense in which those motivations really are are, 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 are what call us into question and actually ask us about our character. Um, if we only do things, if our obedience is only in existence as long as we're afraid, then are we really obedient at all? Oh, look, I, I agree entirely. And I, I mean, I think uh, in what I was saying, I was trying to come in behind Elizabeth's comment that that's actually not the way we should understand that word fear as, mm. as it's translated in those passages. It's not about uh, a, a fear that leads to obedience because we're worried about punishment. It's, it's a reverence and awe which leads to obedience um, because that is the the way of wisdom, and and I entirely agree that that uh, this is only a waypoint. And I think for me the 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 great analogy is of parenthood and and developing children, um, and that part of that journey is teaching them obedience. But that is a waypoint along the way to what we hope will happen, which is that they will find their own internal. Uh, discipline and an ethical core and will be able to um, respond to the, the call of their own ethical principles because they have learnt along the way about um, at one stage being obedient to us as parents who, who told them you shouldn't do this. Um, and mm. gradually they learn why we might have said that. And sometimes they'll take that on board and say, yes, I can see that and I agree. And other times they'll come to a different conclusion and say, well, mum and dad thought that, but actually now that I've thought about it, I think this is right. Mm. Yeah. I think actually that's what God's doing with Job. He's instructing him. Yeah. And it is a cosmic whirlwind kind of overwhelming instruction, but instruction nonetheless. And Job at the end has moved. 
he's certainly different from what he was back in chapter one and two. God has demonstrated that God has complete power over Job's existence. Um, so any any being that has complete power over existence is worthy of of fear of our fear. I mean, when when we find ourselves completely at the mercy of another. Um, they certainly earn our fear, and in this case, you know the the the, the clown played by uh, Michael McKean um, has complete power over those the existence of those who are in that space, and that's that's really shown powerfully. I, I really appreciated um, Kate Mulgrew's acting here when she enters the space. There is no fear in her at all. In fact, no. she stalks him. She she walks around him. She she places interposes herself between him and his his subjects. She she really takes control of the situation and almost without without any dialogue, you can just see that that she is not under his control. Yeah, it's almost seductive. Mm. It, it is, it is. Uh, but but just to go back to the the clown's complete control, uh, you're right. There, that is so incredible. And in fact, my quote of the week um, is uh, from one of the uh, one of the aliens trapped in there, uh, where where he's talking about the clown. And, and I I love you know the 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 great wordplay and the the uh, elegant phraseology. So, you know, when he describes the clown and he says, We're his canvas, his blocks of marble. With us, he practices his ghastly art. I thought, oh, that was so good. <laughs> and, and, and you're right that the, the Janeway doesn't buy into that. She doesn't have that sense of, of being controlled and thus uh, in totally enthralled by fear. She, she's she gone in with a sense that she understands fear, which which leads me to my question. If, if we throw out uh, the, the writer of John and that love is the answer to fear, what is the answer to fear? Is it a good joke like Neelix says or, or what is it that Janeway has actually uh, got hold of here? That's a really good question because I think you can't order people to love. You just can't. It doesn't work that way. Um, and you can't even make a deliberate decision to love. You can try, but it may or may not work for you. I'll come back. I want to come back to Job again with his decision. For him, what he does at the end to overcome that fear and what has happened to him, he actually chooses life. I mean, he and Mrs. Job decide, despite everything that's happened, they're going to procreate again. They're going to have more children. They're going to take a risk. They're going to actually embrace a future. And I think that is what overcomes the fear there, is the, a deliberate decision to say, well, Job says at the end he repents of his sackcloth and ashes. Don't believe your Bibles, people. When they say in, it's wrong. So Job repents and he sets aside his lamentation and he decides he will embrace life despite the risk that may entail. And he no longer micromanages his children. In the first chapter, he's making sacrifices every day for them just in case they have sinned. That's a helicopter mm. parent. By the, the last half, he's given them all an inheritance, which means he's let them go. So he's really moved quite a bit from who he was in the first chapter to the second one. And I think that growth is the answer to fear. It's to embrace life and to understand if you love something, you can't control it. 
he can't control God either. He thought he could, but he can't do that either. I think there's something fascinating in that exploration of Job too, in that that if if well we 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 see that God is instructing Job to become. Um, better um, and and so uh, you know the belief then is that to become more in the image of God that that we actually are are seeing a movement from from understanding an image of God that might be a helicopter trying to make things right all the time and intervening and fixing yeah. things all of the time to to an image of God seen through Job's instruction to one that says, I will allow people to actually make their own decisions, to actually choose what they want to, to do, um, and 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 we'll work through the consequences together. And and as a father of of two children who have moved from being under 18 to over 18, that dynamic really comes into play quite starkly because of the way our society has said with the, at the ticking of a clock, um, a person goes from being a child to an adult according to our, our legal system. They can, my, my two older uh, children can now can now drive, can now live by themselves, can now fund themselves, can now and and so I no longer have power to 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 or have less power to influence them, um, and and for me that answers Lindsay's question: How did Janeway do this? If not with love, she takes the power, um, so she yes, drives she out fear by becoming more frightening. Um, by becoming more powerful, by by actually placing fear in the position that fear had the the crew members in before, and and I think there's some really interesting, like I, I I'm I'm a little disturbed by that message to say that the way to become unfearful is to become a greater fear, to become a greater power. Um, that that has serious implications for our society and community. See, I, I don't think that that's quite what Janeway does. I mean, I, I recognise that that's the impact of the way she acts, but I think she actually gives a clue in, in what she says before she goes in and then in her final interactions with uh, the clown because what what she, I think, pinpoints is that the purpose of fear is to disappear. Like the the whole purpose evolutionary is not for you to be fearful all the time. It's for you to Mm. respond to the thing that's caused the fear such that you've run away or you've defeated it and you no longer need that fear. And I think that's that's what Janeway recognises is that ultimately the purpose of fear is to go away and this fear has gotten trapped there and in a sense she gives fear the possibility of the appropriate ending, that you are no longer needed and so you may go away. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Lindsay. I think that she does have power over him, but I think that's a byproduct rather than her stated aim. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear and I will permit it to pass over me. Where the fear is gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. And where the fear has gone, there will be nothing, and only I will remain. Um, the mantra from Dune. Um, really looking forward to the Dune film coming up shortly, um, and uh, was hoping that I'd get an opportunity to uh, to, to throw that in because uh, I have assembled a team of Dune enthusiasts to uh, to do a three part podcast uh, in early December um, with the release of of uh, that movie. Great cast, great story. Really hopeful it turns out well this time. 
quote from Dune, tick, advertisement <laughs> for podcast, tick. That's right. That's right. Shameless. That's right. Absolutely shameless self-promotion. So while, while, while we're talking about quotes about fear, of course, uh, Harry Kim uh, r- refers to that very famous quote from uh, FDR, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Um, uh, although he doesn't actually name him, he just says, as the man said. And I thought, is that because he can't remember who it was or, or it's just become so ubiquitous that it's the man? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, maybe he was too afraid and his memory was affected. Uh, maybe. I did want to circle back and look at the bigger picture, though, of this this um, life form, this sentient being that they've actually discovered inside this program, that that. I, I, I guess I would want to look at fear um, in particular uh, as being the spokesperson, but all of the other community of fears that actually exist in there, that they've actually developed a point to a point where their artificial intelligence has made them made them a, um, a, an entity. And I, I was interested that Janeway didn't move in the direction that, say, Picard did when he was dealing with the Moriarty character in The Next Generation, where they worked out, well, can we create an environment where they can continue? And they, they did talk about that in, in this episode, yeah. but they, they, didn't, they didn't do it. Or if they did do it, then they put it on a shelf somewhere and they'll, they'll never see it again. We, we don't get any sense, and in fact, we get a, a sense in the ominous ending of this that this is an end, that, that, that Janeway decides to ethnically cleanse this artificial intelligence um, um, and, and remove it from existence, from the, from, from, the, from the universe, rather than actually following the prime directive and allowing it to exist. But she does alpha that. The Doctor's first deal is they'll create an artificial environment for it and he rejects it out of hand. He's just not going to have it because he doesn't get to torment people, I suppose, when he's in such an environment. So for the clown, he doesn't just want to exist. He wants to exist in a very specific way, which is why I assume he says to the doctor, tell her no deal. Well, and and I think, too, that, um, you know, whether you believe it or not, the, the text speak that goes around from Torres and the clown is that it is only the complexity of a living brain which has the capacity to sustain um, uh, this entity. So in, in that sense, it's not an artificial intelligence with its no. own capacity to to be on its own. It, but a, it a must, kind of parasite, yeah. yeah. A parasite, yeah, yeah. It's a figment of their imaginations that's become very... Mind vivid. you, the doctor takes exception to this, you know, because uh, Balana says there's no way an artificial intelligence can replace actual brain functions. <laughs> <laughs> I choose not to take that personally, Hold on, personally, Hold on a second. <laughs> I, I well, I don't blame. Yeah, yeah, that's him. right. He he certainly is operating in a different different way than this this. And I think right. I think that makes sense that 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 we are looking at a parasite here. I, I also wondered in the end, especially with that final word, that final drat, that that fading out to black, whether or not it was Janeway who ended fear, or fear that actually saw no point to itself and ended itself. Mm. Um, and and that's why I love that quote from Dune, where where it's kind of like. When we face it, um, it disappears. Um, that 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 you know, and and I found that experience myself, where you know I've I've heard a bump in the night. I've gotten up, and I'll I'll get up, and in the darkness, anything could be out there. But when I turn the lights on, 
um, the things that I fear the most are actually not there anymore. And if they are there, then I actually can come up with a plan to deal with them. Um, so there, there is a sense in which, and, and even when I'm afraid of something, exposure or vulnerability, that often coming clean, um, as hard as that might be, is often the best way, that once we face the things that frighten us, they end up being not 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 what we thought they were or, or manageable in some way. Hmm. I, I wanted to come back to uh, Elizabeth's uh, comment. I think it was at the start, or maybe it was in our in our pre discussion. But the 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 idea that you know Voyager is putting these two crew members into this um, you know uh, uh, situation of of risk and danger, and and I agree that that's what they're doing. But that I have to say, when uh, I watched it, and particularly when uh, Chakotay makes the comment, if the only way to help these people is to go in and find out from them what's wrong, I don't see any alternative. To, to me, it played like uh, an incarnation analogy. You know, mm-hmm. these people are are in this situation, and the only way to communicate them, the only way to actually identify them, is actually to go in there and be with them. Uh, and it, it very much reminded me of our Christian doctrine of incarnation. Yes, but it did involve quite a modicum of risk, and I'm not saying that Christianity doesn't involve risk, not at all. But, you know, to put them in there when you know something's malfunctioned and to not even be sure, I would think, that you're going to get them back again, there seems to be this sort of real surety there that, you know, they'll be able to push the panel on the wall and come back. And there's so many unknowns. I wondered whether or not it was worth the risk or whether the doctor's saying, well, we can disconnect them and there'll be some brain damage, but, you know not much, they should be all right. I mean, it's weighing up what the most risks are, I suppose, in this situation. And honestly, why did they stop in the first place? I mean, they're sticking their nose into everything as they go along. They always are sticking their nose into everything, and that's very, very true, and I am not recanting that They're, they're curious people. Um, yeah, look, uh, but I do like that incarnational angle that we've just come up with there. You know, Harry Kim Jesus, I think, is actually uh, a, 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 a real really good thought um balana balana no it's not uh, balana um spirit you know come 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 in there and uh, they actually can find a way to communicate uh, i i think the doctor um you know um is is really interesting he's in the world but not of the world um these are all words that we throw around at times aren't they well, why didn't they send the doctor in in the first place? I mean, geez, he's not going to get harmed in the same way that a physical entity. No, is. quite right. I, I, just as you were saying that, Will, I couldn't help thinking that you know the doctor intervening and grabbing the arm and and taking the scalpel for, for me had overtones of of God stopping Abraham as Abraham is about to sacrifice yes. his son. <laughs> it did indeed. That's true. So I'm not sure God corrected Abraham's scalpel hand. <laughs> now, um, just before we, uh, we we come up to our, our final thoughts, I mean, we've still got a little way to go, but I didn't want to get through another, another box to tick. I wanted to wish you a happy birthday uh, this week, uh, Lindsay, uh, or, or um, as, uh, as, as has been said before, uh, that sleeping within the days of the dead body was the final solution that he liked, was my blessing that I accidentally gave to you by uh, inappropriately mistranslating Klingon this week on Facebook. 
Well, I didn't blame you um, because, uh, Will, you know, as, as I think you pointed out, you got different translations if you looked at just one phrase on its own or if you looked at the two together. And, in fact, I discovered that if you do the copy and paste and you included the final period, that gave you a different translation than if you had it everything up to the final period. So uh, I think our, our universal translator is still in need of uh, a little bit more refinement before we can um, talk uh, in Klingon uh, as, as clearly as we might wish. Absolutely. What I was attempting to say was wishing you a happy birthday, live long and prosper. And to, 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 to believe that the Klingons hear from the Vulcans every time they say live long and prosper, prosper is the words, it was the final situation that he liked. Um, I can understand why there's been some intergalactic conflict. <laughs> well, translation. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I did have yeah. a, a lovely birthday and uh, the uh, well wishes from uh, the Neverod and Even crew were, were one of the highlights. Um, I, I wanted to come back to the start of this episode because there, there's, I think, a really lovely sort of little interplay between uh, Paris and uh, Harry Kim uh, as Harry's practising his clarinet uh, to play in a duet with uh, Lieutenant Nicoletti. And it just highlighted for me that I think Tom Paris is always at his best when he's paired with Harry Kim. You know, there's something about the the innocence of Harry uh, that that rubs off on on Paris, and and he's still got that acerbic uh, nature, but it's not so grating. It's actually quite uh, endearing, and uh, I, I loved I loved it. Uh, where um, Paris says, Lieutenant Nicoletti, cold hand, cold heart. And uh, Harry's reply, not when she plays the oboe. <laughs> That's a strong statement about oboe players there too. I think uh, um, there, there is some personality attached to instruments people play, I understand. So um, um, I, I like that too. Although interestingly enough, um, this uh, little vignette that's there was not filmed for this episode. Mm. Um, it was actually originally filmed to be a part of the Death Wish episode where Q comes on board, um, and they ended up with more footage for that episode than they could possibly use. So they actually held it over and went, "We'll just pin it onto the front." As as you as you hear at the end of the vignette, they get the call, um, um, "Bridge crew to the bridge," which could be the beginning of any incident where Voyager has made the decision to get involved in something that they really can't help mm. but get involved in. Um, oh, they're always sticking their nose in, Will. Just um, look, Elizabeth, when when we cause a, a global climate catastrophe on our planet, if there are any, you know, uh, Im omnipotent aliens coming past that can help us, I will gladly accept their help. Well, yes, I probably would You're too. assuming you'll be one of the five people who gets to go in a stasis <laughs> chamber. <laughs> I don't think I will be. <laughs> um, getting back to that that wonderful relationship between Harry Kim, I, I do want to send a shout out to my good friend Robin Yang, who is a listener. Um, at the time that Voyager was being released, um, both Robin and I were um, at uh, Theological College at CTM studying uh, for the Specified Youth uh, Ministry of Youth worker and um there were a, a, a number of people who were voyager fans at the time who actually would uh, refer to us as uh, as as tom and harry um <laughs> that there was a real sense in which um you know uh, i i was always getting into trouble and robin was was always the straight person who was trying to sort things out so 
Big shout out to to my good friend um, Robin Yang, aka Harry Kim, um, and uh, we've had some very exciting away missions together over the years, geocaching and camping, uh, which you can see on um, my YouTube channel, uh, um, Never Odd or Even. Uh, there you go. I've got another plug in. How's that? Mm, very good. Oh, you're doing well. <laughs> I I think uh, seriously though, the thing that uh, that highlights for me, Will, is um, the the real um, need for. Uh, a sort of um, much more diverse representation of different types of people in series like this. And, mm. you know, it, it, it's exciting to me the idea that, you know, uh, people of all kinds of different backgrounds culturally or people uh, of, of different uh uh, sexualities or, you know, people, um, you know, who might be um, non-binary or whatever can, can look at Star Trek properties and, and can say, oh, that person's like me. Oh, that person's like me. Um, you know, that's so important that that uh, we actually uh, allow every different kind of person on the planet to get excited by science fiction and by Star Trek and that it's not just a, a bunch of white men. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that's always been one of the strengths of Star Trek. We might look back on it now and think it was a bit of a paltry effort, but at the time it was amazing. They have worked worked hard over the years to try and um, uh, allow that to create a, a dynamic where where that kind of diversity is actually expressed. Uh, and, and, I mean, Star Trek holds the record for the first interracial kiss uh, on TV um, and, and has continued to, I guess, break those records over time where in Discovery today we have our first non-binary character. Um, we, we have... Um, um, normalized relationships between people of the same gender. Um, and I, I read a really interesting article the other day about somebody who was saying that the fall of science fiction today was that it had become overly woke and that there was way too much social justice warfare promotion going on. <laughs> and I kind of, as I was reading, I was thinking to myself, where have you been? Have yeah. you been watching the same science fiction over the last uh, hundred years that I've been I've been watching and reading? Science fiction has always at its heart been uh, an opportunity to challenge the status quo and ask the questions that perhaps might be too hard to ask in in reality uh, so I would uh, I would suggest anybody who holds that position if you're out there um, have another look uh, you probably need to go back to your Doctor Who and see that climate change was being discussed by John Pertwee's Doctor Who in 1974 that um, you'd need to actually, um, be looking back through science fiction and recognise that John Wyndham was writing about uh, social equity and diversity uh, in the book Consider Her and Her Ways back in the in the early night early part of last century. So yeah, I I think um it's it's important to 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 have another look. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I agree with you entirely. I think you know science fiction has always been a, a way of of exploring our current world in a different setting by putting it into a, a, another dimension or putting it into the future or into the distant past uh, or whatever. It allows us that uh, sort of sense of distance and objectivity to actually pull apart the things that we look at in our own world. And 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 naturally, a, a big part of that is actually thinking about the places where injustice uh, is the norm and how we might wish the world to be different. Mm. 
Yep. I mean, that's exactly what the book of Job does all those centuries ago. It's not set in Israel. It's set in this faraway land of Uz. It starts basically once upon a time. There was a man in this faraway land named Uz. And you know that it's going to be different. It's going to raise all those questions that you were talking about, Will. And it's put into a um, scenario that allows you to do it. So in the sense, it's the science fiction of its time. But, uh, one of the interesting things I think is is that science fiction also walks that uh, tightrope of, on the one hand, quite clearly being a mechanism to look at our current world in another fictional setting. And yet another big part of it, and I think a big part that we as fans really get behind, is the way that it tries to make it real and, and use references to things things that have gone before or things that have been in other other properties or whatever to to increase the sense that it's real. And in this particular episode, we have uh, uh, the mention of Galondon Core, uh, which um, uh, the clown talks about Galondon Core and, and did uh, Chulak, uh, you know, talk about his defeat there. Um, and and Galondon Core is something that's come up uh, a number of times, uh, I think three times in TNG in different settings. Um, and so there's that 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 sort of paying homage to something that's happened before. But the fascinating thing is that this story of Chulak of Romulus is not mentioned in any of those previous references to Galondon Core. This is something new that uh, the Michael McKean character brings in, and and fans. Uh, some years later, in 2011, actually wrote uh, a, a novelette uh, about Chulak of Romulus and how his defeat was actually at the hands of uh, the Enterprise at Galondon Core. So, you know, again, that, that fan uh, work of actually trying to make real uh, the wonderful fictional universe that we love. And I think we lose something significant the moment we take our canonized scripture and we remove it from the concept of fiction out of some form of need to defend or, or protect it. I actually think that for me um, to refer to um, aspects of, of scripture and the canon as, as fictional works designed to inspire or provoke or push us to think about various concepts actually strengthens its its worth and value and significance rather than weakens it and i i know that puts me out of step with quite a number of uh, of of christians and scholars but there's a sense in which i actually I, I i'm saddened that we've actually reached a point of enlightenment in our current age that we've separated fiction and non-fiction so starkly away from each other because i think they actually need to be in in playful playful um connection Absolutely. And all good fiction will sort of ground itself in some sort of historical or, or a reality that one can relate to. Otherwise, what's the mm. point if you can't relate to it? And you're absolutely right, Will. And I think in, in this post-enlightenment trend we have to want to historicise everything, we've done a lot of violence to the Bible. Yeah because it was never meant to be seen that way. The writers of the Bible did not write it to be seen that way. And we forget that when people want to make it some black and white narrative that God is saying is, is factual. 
that's not why it was written at all. And and I think for me that, uh, and clearly not all of the Bible falls into this genre, but the, the genre of storytelling is so important, uh, you know, that, yeah. that we, we tell stories. And I think that that's a part of, of what it is to be human is telling stories. And, and sometimes those stories are absolutely truthful and we're recounting something that, you know, is our own personal experience. Sometimes, uh, you know, like the old uh, adage says, you know, there are lies, damned lies and sermon illustrations. Sometimes we, um, (laughs) you know, are gilding the lily but telling a story that has some kernel of meaning or truth. And sometimes we're telling stories simply for the the joy and excitement Mm. and, uh, you know, the beauty of them. And and I love that that art of storytelling, and I think so much of the Bible is telling stories, and that doesn't mean that we have to say it's all uh, fictional, um, but even when, uh, you know, there is either a core of truth or even when it is uh, primarily uh, historical, it's still a story and it still acts, yes. acts on our imagination in the same way. Uh, and I'll, I'll go out on a really wide limb here, as I want to do from time to time, um, and no. suggest that that to to some extent, all all writing, all history, all journalism contains a measure of fiction within them. That 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 sometimes we'll pretend that that certain literature, certain documentation, actually has objective truth to it. But the reality is, even when we're talking in the areas of science, that hypothesis has at its core this this idea of playful fiction that says, "What if this were true?" Um, that 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 I that I think that the moment we actually claim something as 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 non-fiction. Uh, in its entirety, we are actually losing our opportunity to engage with it in a full sense. I think that's probably true because you're losing the opportunity to engage your emotions and it's your emotions that do the engaging initially um, and get you interested in something and get you wanting to hear it or read it and learn from it. And there's an interesting line in the episode we've just watched where uh, the, the clown is talking to the doctor uh, and, and he's discombobulated because he can't uh, access the doctor's brain the same way that he accesses the brains of others. And he says, how am I supposed to negotiate if I don't know what you're thinking? And the doctor replies, I have a very trustworthy face, um, which, which is a funny line. But I think it's actually this same sort of uh, sense that we never have complete knowledge of another and, and when we hear someone else talking or we hear their story or whatever it might be, we never have complete knowledge. We are always working on the basis of their very trustworthy face and, and of knowing that there's this gap between my knowledge and their knowledge and, and even between what I think I know and what might be uh, reality. And we, we talked about the Johari window uh, last time, you know, that I don't know everything mm-hmm. about myself. There are some things only other people uh, know about me. So that, that interesting gap, I think, is part of the human experience uh, that, that we never have complete knowledge of uh, I- any other human, let alone the writer of a text 2,000 years old. No, that's right. And that's part of the fun, as Will says, because that leads you on the journey of discovery. And whether you discover what the ancient writer thought you should discover is, in a sense, neither here nor there. Mm. Absolutely, that's part of being a living text. It's part of being a, yes. a, a something that that still has a value in the context of here and now, and the context of the future and the past, um, all at once. 
So as we uh, we come to an end today um, and uh, fear subsides, we ask the question, what will become of us, of me? Like, well, oof. and, and, yeah, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt would reply that, uh, that, 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 you know, the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truths and the measure of the restoration is in the extent to which we apply social values more noble than mere profit. So there you go. <laughs> oh, that's quite a quote. More noble than more mere profit. Oh, the Ferengis in the audience will be absolutely upset about that. Uh, there's, there's nothing more noble than mere profit. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, that uh, um, has covered the episode called The Thor. Um, we um, uh, are, are all ready for uh, another very exciting episode <laughs> next week, I have to say. Um, and uh, I, I am I'm really looking forward to the to the to the ways in which our credulity gene will be stretched uh, as we uh, as we proceed into next week's episode. Yes, um, indeed. Well, I know that it's called Tuvix. It is called Tuvix, um, which does suggest some sort of <laughs> is this Tuvok and Neelix mm. doing something bad? Like, so, don't they do it, do something? something bad? They find themselves in a very awkward situation. But I think there's some wonderful ethical dilemmas next week, and I'm really looking forward to that. It is the most written about, talked about, and controversial episode of of Star Trek Voyager next week. Uh, and Janeway um, in the in the fandoms comes under significant fire for her mm. decision making mm. processes. So it's yeah. a real test of her leadership next week. So looking forward to Tuvix uh, next week. Um, thanks for joining us again. Um, this has been Star Trek A Theological Voyager, as we're now calling it. Uh, uh, sorry, Theological Journey, as we're calling it Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. I, I'll, keep, I'll keep trying. Um, uh, I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lynn. I'm Liz. Drat. <laughs>